Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. I'm Tatum Duroc and this is our Pride episode. Happy Pride, everyone. Now, we know that sometimes post-diagnosis, going out to Pride, hitting the clubs, going out-out can sometimes look a bit different. So joining me today, I have Indigo, who was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 27. And right beside me, I've got Scott. And you were diagnosed a month before your 40th birthday. That yep. is one way to welcome in your 40s, isn't it? And then every birthday I've had um, stem cell transplant or Zamita or some kind of doctor's appointment. Tell me, what was your life like when you were diagnosed? It was September the 18th, 2019. So a lot of people would say, oh, 2020 was the worst year ever for them. Mm. Happened one year before for me. We, my husband and I ran a business called Gay Star News and we had to close that into July. So it was already starting to be a pretty bad year. And the reason why I say that is that the day after we closed, I was taken into A&E. Um, I got a historic bad back in the May 2019. Big spasm happened, but it didn't feel like a regular back spasm. Just carried on, carried on working, carried on pushing through. And it wasn't until... Late August, early September, I was finding out that my kidneys were failing. And Lots how did you find tests. that out? Lots of different tests. Okay, so um, they were really looking into you with the bad back. They were. They just put me, right, here's some stronger drugs, go away, take them and rest. Okay, yeah. De-stress. I was like... <laughs> um, I knew something wasn't right. I'd had an ear infection for 18 months. I had a Veruca for three years. I realised that my body wasn't the same. I was slowing down. I would normally be able to do walk and talks and walk for a long time, go to the gym, etc. Everything was really hard and I just put that down to stress. So it wasn't until I got a routine kind of... One doctor said, let's give you a blood test. And that was kind of like in the late August, kind of early September. And then a few weeks later, got a call saying, we think that this test is showing that your kidneys are failing. We need to check that. Can you come in next week? Yep, absolutely. My good friend has bad kidneys, so I kind of was comfortable thinking, oh, okay, I can deal with this. Then the test showed that the kidneys were failing even more from the last few weeks test got a call to say, can you go to A&E now? It's like, okay, I've got suitcases. We're off to a long weekend for the Isle of Wight. Trains in 20 minutes. Oh, no. At Waterloo. And the consultant said, if you don't go, I won't be able to rest this weekend. Your kidneys are at 45% active. Everybody's is at a level of around 90%. So went to A&E, six hours in A&E thinking, why am I here again? What's happening? Don't know. Ultrasound, x-rays, urine tests, bloods. They couldn't find anything for six hours. They said, we know that something's wrong. 
your kidneys are now at 35%. So even within the space of that week, it's dropped down drastically. We're not going to admit you into hospital now, but come back on Monday, go to the Isle of Wight, catch that last train, and come back at the kidney specialist at Guy's. I was like, okay. Went away, didn't drink, ate cheese, (laughs) slept, walked along the beach, kept as calm as possible. On the Monday, kidneys started to go back up again. And then, within the space of that last blood test in A&E, they'd already gone down from 35 to 33%. Doctor said, kidneys have gone back up to 35, that's good. But I'm going to do some more bloods and then put them all around the departments, just go home. I think you're okay, though. Two weeks later, haematology call. We hadn't had a holiday for a year, like a proper week off. In the car, going to Cornwall, got a call from haematology at Guy saying, we'd like to come, we'd like you to come in straight away. I was like, why? You really weren't catching a break with your holidays, <laughs> were you? And I imagine when you had the business, the Gay Star News together, it was probably really full on. Yep. Which is why kind of when they said stress to you, yep. you're like, oh, okay. Like, you know. Just put it behind, deal with it. Yeah. Just push on through. And then, and then finally, you've got these holidays and each time it's kind of, what I can feel from this story is a little bit like, go away, everything's okay. Okay, come back in but right now. Yeah. Okay, you can go again. And then you I think had to get going. special permission to go away on holiday. I was like, I'm on the M4. Wow. <laughs> and I went in the week after, but I'd already got a text alert to say, come in for an MRI in the cancer centre. At that point, is that when you started to think? No, I ignored it. I thought, I can't, I'm away. Where we are in Cornwall, uh, mother-in-law's house, she doesn't have Wi-Fi, so it's great. I can't look this up. So I ignored it, and I put it to the back of my mind and tried to keep as calm as possible. We both did. And then that day in haematology on the 18th of September, I was told. And within the hour, I was laughing and joking because I asked, am I going to die? She said no. I said, well, you could have told me in a better way. I've got cancer, babe, in balloons. You know, be a bit more humorous about it. <laughs> but she said, I think you're going to be fine. But your, your, your blood cells on the stems normally are 5 per- I think on the white blood cell, normally about 5% inflamed you are 4,800% inflamed, which shows it's myeloma. But I'm going to have to do a bone marrow biopsy to be sure. Couldn't do the biopsy. I went into a shock on the gas in there. I was singing Frozen and then started sounding like Darth Vader. (laughs) And it was horrible. Um, So I had to go back in the week after and then... Uh, early October started the chemo. That is such a roller coaster, and I think for some people, how they are diagnosed, what's said to them, you know, how they feel in the run-up, sometimes has a really big effect on then how the rest, how they perceive their own treatment going forward. Yeah. Um, have you sort of felt like you're on a bit of a roller coaster since then? Like, has well, it- six months of chemo, and then on the 13th of July, I think it was, the 9th of, no, sorry, I think it was the, the 9th of March, or the 13th of March, I um, had my last day of chemo, 
country was starting to shut down because of COVID in 2020. And the office that I was working at the time said, just go home, like work from home. A week later, the country completely was in lockdown. I was told my treatment was on a month off anyway of drugs to then have a stem cell harvest. That was going to have to be rushed because doctors and the laboratories were falling sick. So instead of having a month off chemo and then kind of your body starts healing itself and to generate more blood, they started to rush that. So instead of two weeks of, I think it's something like eight days or ten days of boosting your blood to create more blood, had to do it in three days. Three injections a day at 5pm, blah, blah, blah. And I had to do those myself. And that was horrible. That was probably the worst bit of it all, the pain. I felt like I was um, Veronica in the Willy Wonka mm. chocolate fact. I felt huge, but it's all the bar- blood in your spine, just nowhere to go. So you just, you can't move. I was in extreme pain. Soon and you're the- having to do that to yourself as well with those self-injections. Yeah. And it was the first time I've ever, uh, ever self-injected. And you go... <laughs> <laughs> And, oh, I didn't know they were self-retractable until the last one. Oh, no. <laughs> These are things that you learn along the way yeah. that, you know, you're like, I never thought that this would be my skill set going forward. I've given tutorials over WhatsApp now to friends who have had blood thinners and stuff like that. So um, I just got used to it. Then after the harvest, which went really well, really well. They were expecting three million blood um, uh, stem cells. They got five within one sitting. They thought they were going to have to go over two days. So I thought that was the first bit of real positive news because I worked every day during the chemo. I carried on working. You just do. You kind of just get on with life. Well, I did. And I was told just to go home and lock the door. So we did. And it was July or late June 2020, had to go in for my first stem cell transplant during the pandemic. And that was something that was, I I think it was a blessing in some ways because I wasn't in contact with anybody else Mm. that could pass on another infection. So they normally would tell to patients that you come out after day 26 or 27. I was out on day 13. And the second one, because I had a tandem, was in October 2020. Three months rest and then go straight back, straight back into it. Day 13 out again. Wow. So in some respects, the isolation helped. Mm. Um, but in other respects, you know, oh my God, that, that, that isolation to be treated during COVID... Um, is is huge and I, I'd love to bring Indigo in at this point so um, Indigo you were 27 what what was going on in your life when you were told the um, news so I've been re- I've been really unwell with for several years with um, severe Crohn's colitis um, which is a form of um, IBD or inflammatory bowel disease um, and basically I was used to having extreme constant abdominal pain. Um, so in March, 2022, um, basically it had gone to the point where I couldn't keep fluids down. And this wasn't as 
um, extraordinary of a circumstance as one would hope for in one's general day-to-day -day life. Um, so I was like, yep, yeah, well, we know the drill. I'll just go to A&E. They give me IV fluids and a drip. You know, like I get, I get, I get them, I go home, you know, still in terrible uncontrolled pain, but hey ho until we find the working treatment this is just how it is um because i've been in treatment for like a couple of years at that point none of them working um it's a whole thing but um yeah so i was kind of i was just used to it right so i thought you know what, when you pop down to, this is the way i try to explain to people you know when you pop down to the shops for like a pint of milk mm -hmm. and then you come away with like loads of things in your basket that you yeah. didn't expect or plan for. Um, I've had like, the medical equivalent of that. So I popped down to the hospital for what I thought was just rehydration. I get there, they find, uh, like they do some scanning and they find that I've got appendic like, acute appendicitis um, from the scans. And like the surgeon was absolutely horrified because they had to do an emergency appendectomy. Was so horrified that I hadn't noticed the pain over the top of the pain I already had. Like it went completely under the radar for me. Um, and I was like, oh, but you know, it's so like, do we just do like antibiotics and you send me home? He's like, no, no, you, it's, it, you know, we need to operate now. I was like, are you sure? He goes, well, it's either that or you die. And I was like, mm, these yeah. are difficult decisions. Death <laughs> or surgery, which is worse? Cause I have terrible medical phobias. So it was a whole thing, but um, yeah, we ended up doing the operation, but, um, and, and it was like literally quite quickly done cause it was an emergency, but um when they were doing the scanning that found the appendicitis, um, basically they also found something else on the scan at the same time. And they were initially like super vague about it. So I think it was initially like, we found something on your scan, not sure what. And like, that was sort of like just before the surgery. I was like, okay. And they're like, we have to get an expert to sort of look at it. Like the radiographers need to sort of properly assess. I'm like, okay. Um, and then after I've come around, they go, yeah, so we think maybe it could be like um, an abscess or a cyst or something in your kidney. I'm like, oh, okay, what's the, or something. They're like, we don't know. Just, it's hard to tell at this point. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then just as they sort of discharge me, um, they go, okay, so we referred you on to um, a urologist um, and, you know, it could be a tumor, but he'll be able to tell you more. I'm like, okay, cool. So fast forward six weeks later i'd seen the urologist and he like had a sort of double specialism in like cancer stuff so um i kind of have nicknamed him magic kidney cancer dude just because like people don't necessarily have urology and oncology off the back of their like like you know to, to on the tip of their tongue to sort of know what it means but um he was very very kind uh we ended up not doing a biopsy because um like for where like it was it would be quite difficult and like um i wasn't able to face doing it like just even with like conscious conscious sedation so um we skipped it and so basically we just had the surgery six weeks after it had been found and he was like we'll just analyze it once it's out i'm like yep yeah, cool sounds sound fair enough you know what's out of me it's not not my problem sort of thing you know like you do what you need to do at this point i'm still holding on to the you know not all tumors could be cancer like you know it, it could be one of those like rare anomalies that mm. are fine somehow maybe like there was there was maybe a little bit of denial going on but it's from what i've heard from talking to other people that can be a fairly typical thing but, yeah um, and i'm still envisioning your your um, basket and and every time you say something else, I'm imagining the beep beep as it gets checked yep. out, you know, and mm -hmm. almost when you said, you know, oh, it, it could be benign. It's like it's going back over the scanner again. Mm -hmm. uh, Unexpected item in bagging area, basically. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
um so yeah so i had the partial nephrectomy obviously um and you know i thought for the for the low low price of get rid of suspicious tumor take away some of your kidney is a, a fair exchange like um and yeah so it turned out to be and i'll try and get the name right here renal cell clear cell carcinoma um and it was t3a n0 m0 for the like statistics geeks out there in case you enjoy that um but yeah basically it was the size of a lime which um i ended up doing a little sculpture afterwards to sort of process because i was in a lot of pain and i'm like you know when you can't see what's yeah. been taken away i'm like why am i in so much pain it's like probably not even that big i did a plasticine sculpture like literally children's play-doh um and like painted it with acrylic paint it was a very very diy kind of a setup but like being able to hold it i was like okay that i actually yeah that's that's a size that's that's a fair amount like a, a lime is not that tiny but um to be fair it's it, the size of the thing doesn't really matter because it's the emotional and the mental side of like cancer stuff can be huge yeah. regardless but um yeah so it's uh one thing that was quite um i, I guess surprising was as I, say, I was already very ill regardless but i didn't have any symptoms from my kidney um and apparently I was three to five years away from having any symptoms show up. So by the time it would have like presented itself naturally, had it not been found by accident on the scans, um, basically by then my prognosis would have been very, very different. Um, but yeah, so basically right now I have to have um, like scans every six months for the first two years following the surgery um, and then yearly thereafter for the rest of my life. But as of my most recent scan, I am still currently cancer free and just sort of like, you know, fingers crossed to stay that way. But um, yeah. So we've, we've we've got our fingers and hands waving yeah. in, in support of that. Um, you know, what I could really hear between your two stories was um, that thing of having back pain, which is, I mean, one of the most common reasons that people go to the GP. Um, but that being kind of, you know, the start for you of being able to get those tests, but it's kind of hidden behind something sort of really every day. And for you, you had something that had become your every day with the IBD that was hiding kidney and, you know, appendicitis. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, that's for both of you, that's, that's a lot of kind of feeling, well, if I didn't have those other things, how long would it have been until I it was found out? And my back pain started when I was 15. We really? found out that I had a crack in my vertebrae in the lower part of my back. I couldn't wake up. I, well, I couldn't stand up one morning. So I had to do my whole GCSEs in a room by myself so I could stand up. And I couldn't stand up longer than 15 minutes. I couldn't sit down for longer than 15 minutes. And they don't know why. They said, oh, you know, it's a third of the country. You have this kind of like little crack in the vertebrae. You're just growing pains. You're just unlucky. Mm. Um, so I've dealt with back pain on and off for, since I was 15. So I'm used to pain. Yeah. Just pushed through it. Don't take any, um, wasn't taking really many drugs. So I just power on through. So a bit like indigo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Like, that ability to be able to power through can be really good, but then it doesn't always give you the impetus to be like, okay, you know, I've really got to get this sorted. I know for me, like, uh, post-cancer, like, I've had different things come up and people have gone, oh, well, why don't you go to the doctor? And I'm like, I'm not going to the doctor for that. <laughs> like, 
Um, it just it just seems weird to go to the doctor for something small, like in my mind, small now. But actually, um, you know that that thing of pushing through um, can really, you know. And I know that a lot of people I say listen to your body, and I know that annoys a lot of people because they do. And you know, you once you had treatment and once you're on a load of drugs, you start getting rashes or you start feeling this or that or constipated or whatever. You can't keep going back to the GP. Mm. But there are, I kind of, I know now that when something doesn't feel right and I know that it's not one of the symptoms, I actually read that list in that box of tablets, you know. I started um, cod liver oil recently and I just felt bloated. I was burping all the time. It just didn't react well and I looked, looking at looking it up and actually it reacts with certain blood thinners and it and all this kind of stuff so stop that feel fine so you have to really consider what you're putting inside your body mm-hmm. drinks or tablets or vitamin d's and all this kind of stuff and then actually start being sensible about it you have to really take care of yourself and you know that brings me on to um the topic of pride because that's not a traditional season for our people of sensibleness um it is it is the time when sensibleness often goes right out the window um so i wanted to ask uh, both of you you know like i can hear that you've prior to being diagnosed you had you know considerations already challenges from going out but like what would be a a kind of a normal pride for you Uh, (laughs) i'm a professional lgbtqi queer person i have been for 22 years so tell me about your professional pride status i used to go to 22 plus prides a year (gasps) wow so there was a lot which is the best pride um, depends on the weather. It depends on the end of the season. So we used to like Manchester Pride a mm-hmm. lot because it was the end of what we were actually doing as a team. Right. We were handing out 100,000 Pride bags at the end of the parade for the last four years of you know GSN and up and down the country. So Manchester Pride for us was exhausting <laughs> but fun over four days. So that was always a good one. Um, but it's I always find that it doesn't matter what Pride you go into there's always one thing that actually makes you feel happy. Mm. Whether it's seeing um, a newborn baby in, in someone's arms or dogs covered in pride flags or, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, people, queer people kissing for the first time. I was up in Glasgow and it was teeming down with rain at the uh, end of the parade. And I said to this, I was like, put your shirt on, you're going to catch pneumonia. And they turned around and went, but I'm now a trans man and I can show my chest. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Go get pneumonia. (laughs) Yeah. Go, like, be whoever you need to be. Just, it's always happy. My mum and dad have come along. Really? Nephew and nieces, other people. And we've always enjoyed it as much as we can as as a community of queer family and beyond. It's amazing. For me, the bit in the parade that used to always get me was the parents going out, you know, with the signs. I love my you know, mm. queer daughter or I love my gay son. And I don't know why, but I would just cry as they would go past and like I and and it's not as if like I had like a particular reason for that. It's just something so incredibly moving about that moment and just, you know, seeing them like just, you know, so in support of their child. Mm. Um 
so in indigo what what did pride look like for you yeah um so i'm actually based locally to glasgow so glasgow pride is my one um i actually am curious if the um time you mentioned was actually during um 2014 because i actually that was my first pride ever in glasgow and it was super rainy that time though to be fair with glasgow like that is a fairly standard experience but <laughs> it was just quite funny because obviously you see a lot of pride things on like film and tv and it's always like really sunny absolutely roasting everyone sort of like you know fanning themselves and everything and i just thought like this is such a glasgow edition like the skies are gray everyone's huddled under rainbow umbrellas like little penguins for warmth but like <laughs> the rainbow it was fabulous um but yeah so uh that was my first time uh like almost almost a decade ago um but i actually haven't been able to go to pride in a few years because i have been so unwell like even pandemic aside um like i just haven't been well enough um so uh when i was able to go i used to go to like the um like smaller sort of free pride events um that they used to hold in glasgow um there's been like um like ongoing charity funding um issues so it's not on this year but um there is um the mainstream one which is called mardi glas on on i think the 15th of july this year um but because I'm still like, um, I, like I'm, I've been immunosuppressed basically for the last three years because of the various biological chemotherapies and high dose steroid courses um, for my Crohn's colitis. Um, but basically, they I've finally been six months clear of them as of two weeks ago. Um, so my ability to go like out and to pride and things has actually finally come back. But I'm still kind of guessing used to it because there is that sort of level of wariness but um yeah it's it, it is interesting trying to sort of like look for different ways to sort of engage with pride maybe mm. um but yeah it's 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 a little bit odd because i feel like i've been out of the loop like i haven't gone back mm. into the closet but i have been very much stuck at home um yeah. I, I think that's you know you, you make you bring up a really good point because i think for some people Going out to clubs, you know, and, and you know, meeting people, and that's often where people's friends were um, and where they met new friends, that when you can't do that, you do feel, you know, a little out of the loop and maybe not as connected to your identity as much. Um, whereas, yeah, everyone's had a separation with, with COVID, you know, and there was a period of time um, that it affected everyone. But when, when you're not kind of, you know, able to meet people in the supermarket, you're not able to meet people in a coffee shop or, you know, like there are just those spaces. And they do tend to be very able-bodied, you know, for people who are, you know, able and fit and healthy to go out at night. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, what would be your ideal pride that you would like to attend now? So what would be, what would be some of the considerations for you or other people that you know with cancer um, that could make Pride more accessible? I think it's one of those things that Prides now are everywhere. So there's well over 100 Prides in the UK. So you don't have to go to the big city one because that is quite intimidating and scary for a lot of people. My last Pride was 20 
2021 and it was a small pride outside of Manchester but even I felt nervous because it was a small pride but I didn't like the crowds you know immune immune suppressed as well um and I'll probably go to one this year which would be my first big one since 2019 and I don't like standing around big crowds anymore you know that's a big problem I don't like having to constantly think where do I where can I go a loo yeah because you're on so many tablets when you need to go you need to go mm-hmm. and I don't have any kind of signs that I look like I'm in need or uh, you know I've got a disability or that you know because of my back I do have a please I need a seat badge for the London tube and people look at you and go well no you don't you're just trying to get a seat I'm not Mm. not gonna move so the whole journey I've been stared at by someone so more toilets yeah you know is one thing that recognition of invisible disability would be so could be so handy yeah um but prides are really prides organizations are that each pride is run differently because it's a group of people mainly volunteers working a few year round but a lot of the time a few months before and a little bit afterwards. So it's the the larger ones that are, and I can only really think of one or two that are working all year round, that have the ability and the money to start thinking, we need to get this group involved or that group involved to give us and the information of what we need to do. And they have got better over the last, you know, 20 years. But again, I think that they, a lot of them, a lot of the professional ones need to really dig in more deeper than they actually are on different sets of community, whether that's black and Asian, um, disabilities, parents, etc., etc. What do we all need? Because, yeah, uh, a big act is one thing, mm. but when you're in the middle of Trafalgar Square and you want to be in the middle of Trafalgar Square listening to a great speech, you might need the loo. Yeah. You might need a seat. And that's why you see people sitting down on the pavements. And that's fun. I mean, I've had so many great conversations just sitting down <laughs> on the pavement. But it's not clean. No. Oh, no. No. We were, we were talking about that beforehand. Uh, the streets are often uh, diabolically smelly by the, by the end of the day. Um, you definitely don't want to be sitting down. Um, you know, one of the things that I saw recently was a club night in East London for neurodiverse um, queer people. And it was going to not have strobe lights and the music was going to be a little bit quieter. And Mm -hmm. I was like, huh. And can we all be in bed by eight? (laughs) With a paracetamol and, you know, and some water. You know, and I was like, this, this is, this is great. Because I think a lot of neurodiverse people, the idea of being, you know, somewhere where the music is really loud and everything's all consuming is just too much. But also equally, when you're going through cancer treatment and you're so sensitive to your environment, to what's going on around you, um, you know, lights and sound and noise and, you know, kind of feeling a little bit hesitant. Like the idea of those kinds of considerations just seems amazing. And I always feel that the sober community 
is ignored massively during Pride mm. because you the first thing is to go out and get drunk. Right. And then what you do when you're drunk, you go and hug and kiss and everybody. And then, yep. like we were saying, people, sexual health clinics are really busy after Prides and when people go on holiday. Because mm. one of the, you forget to take your prep or you forget to take a condom or any kind of precaution. And then all kind of like, it's all out the window. And I think by the communities like ours by saying, look, can everyone be a little bit more considerate? And I think we have been over the last few years. Can we be a little bit more considerate of everybody else's feelings and spatial awareness? But I'm probably the worst one because I'll go up and cuddle anybody and then think, oh, God, I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I, I enjoy hugging people as well. But since since COVID, I have gotten more used to saying, do you do hugs? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and or going in for a wide hug. Mm, yeah. It's, it, it, has, it definitely has changed since COVID. What about you, Indigo? Like, what would be your ideal setup? What, what can you yeah. envision? I mean, I actually have experienced some of it. As I say, the um, Free Pride Glasgow events um, that I've attended over the years, they have had, um, like, firstly, indoor spaces so that you can come out of the sun and cool down, which, um, especially if you've got additional dehydration risks and chronic fatigue issues, having somewhere to sit where it's cooler um, helps a lot, I think. But um, they also obviously had toilets because a lot of Pride events, it can be like the little porter cabins, which... um, you know, like I've actually um, just recently in spring of this year had um, stoma surgery and a panproctocolectomy, like which is still an ongoing recovery thing. Um, but I have to be like super careful to make sure where I'm going has toilets and then trying to suss out if they're toilets that are actually going to be compatible. Like um, the charity um, Colostomy UK, they've got an ongoing campaign for um, the stoma friendly uh, toilets. Um, campaign which you can find on the Colostomy UK website um, and I highly recommend for people to try and get involved because there is a massive overlap in the stoma and cancer communities um, like I happen to have had them for like separate reasons but like I'm still one person but there are loads of people who have had cancer and have stomas and can have stomas for a range of reasons but you know the more accessible we make spaces generally the more we can all get out out and get to celebrate pride like because it is meant to be for everyone you know so the more we can open it up the better but um yeah like so the um like you were saying about the um like the neurodivergent friendly like club nights the um like some of the prides i've been to they've had um quiet rooms basically so a room where people turn like their phones onto silent they can just sit quietly and read there's some like bean bags there's like um fidget toys and stuff and like you can you know uh, like um ear defenders so you can literally just like have a little decompression like especially if people have gone on like the march like there are so many whistles like i find that really like a sensory overload thing because like i'm on the autistic spectrum as well like as i say i'm like a 3,000 diagnoses in a trench coat, basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like the, like even like before I was majorly unwell, I actually found like the accommodation super helpful. So it can actually like end up helping people in so many different like configurations and stuff. But um, yeah, making sure that there are like, you know, facilities for people to have. And like, um, I can't actually remember specifically, but I think Free Pride might also have been a sober space as well. My go-to is I generally sort of wave at people or sort of like flap a rainbow fan, mm-hmm. um, which I dare say I'm probably going to like keep moving with going forward. Although I do absolutely love hugs. I'm just like, I've still got that additional cautiousness because although I'm, as I say, very freshly no longer immunosuppressed, um, my 
brain is still playing catch up. Yeah. I'm kind of like, it, it's really strange. I'm trying to get used to having an average risk level. I'm like, oh, surprise bonus. Like, cause literally like the absolute fear of like, if you go outside, doom, like it's been three years of shielding and I've kind of, it's yeah, I've gotten really used to it. But um, like in a nice way, I, I have to now sort of try to get used to going out out again. And obviously like, um, cause I've actually got more surgeries coming up um, in September, which is very annoying. Cause it'll be like, for the rest of my life, I'll have to keep having surgeries. Um, it's just part of like my Crohn's colitis, unfortunately, but my surgeon's given me like the summer off to heal. Um, so I'm like, okay, so this is like the season of pride. I have to make good use of the summer. And like, I've double checked with the surgeon. Am I like allowed to dance? She goes, yeah. Am I allowed to go out? She goes, yeah. I said, can I do stairs? She goes, yeah. I'm like, excellent. I can get out to the gay bars. Fantastic. <laughs> so, like, um, it is actually really cool. And, and like, you know, I've, I'm, I think I've been really quite um, lucky in like some of my hospital experiences because my um, surgeon I actually ended up um, sharing that I use they them pronouns in the hospital um, and like as soon as like I mentioned it like they just rolled with it and it was absolutely fantastic like they were really respectful and like used gender neutral terminology for me which like made the experience so much better because there wasn't like a layer of misgendering and stuff. Feeling like yourself even when you can't necessarily access your community. And I think that, you know, at Shine, um, we've created an LGBTQI group that's meeting quarterly um, and, and you've both been there. How has it felt for you meeting other people with cancer who also identify as queer? I've not really had to come out as many times of other people in their profession or family. I came out when I was 18 and then 19 to families and then that was it. Then I was at art school my, and my whole career has been in LGBTQI media. So I kind of feel like I've had to come out as a cancer patient and then find my people. Mm. So finding more queer people with cancer has probably been a little bit harder than just finding friends who have been through similar, you know, uh, diagnosis. I've got a lot of myeloma friends now. The myeloma group seems to be really active and really supportive than any other cancer that I've heard of or, or known. Um, where we share a lot of advice. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm talking to three or four people on a regular basis and we're all helping each other. I haven't found that many, apart from yourselves, very many queer LGBTI people. And I'm just finding my feet around that. Mm-hmm because I don't think it's talked about enough. It isn't. It isn't. I've definitely, um, way back before I was with Shine, I remember being in a support group and someone was playing the pronoun game. And I, I, you know, I knew that they were gay, but they weren't able to say it in a support group in London. This wasn't the dark ages. It was 2015. You just think, how sad. Mm. But also totally understandable, right? If you're feeling really vulnerable and you want to express something in what should be a safe place and you're not sure how people are going to respond, that is really, that's really hard. And so I could I could completely empathize. And then what I would do is just out myself and then go over and above. And, you know, I was the one in the group that would be like, so sex. Because uh, <laughs> um, I had just come from L.A. And, you know, people are really open there. The first um, support group I went to, the second one that I went to, 
Um, basically half the room had done a one-woman show. So there was no holds barred. I mean, when you got up to speak, like literally they performed what they had been through and there was nothing that was off the table. So I was so used to that, that, that coming here and seeing people that I knew were gay, like just literally not say it. And that's how I've been. I've been all out, mm. making sure Tris, my husband, is at the meetings and in the hospitals and everybody knows. So I, you know, on the phone, some consultants who don't know me face to face said, or more the receptionists, or oh, you bring your wife, mm. etc. when I've said that I've got a partner. And I think all of my consultants and nurses now know that I'm LGBT queer. And I love it when I, the lanyards and the badges and everything that you see in the hospitals, love that because we get a little conversation going. Then you get better treatment. <laughs> you get the good drugs, you know, because it, it shows the nurses are hard working mm -hmm. and they're telling you who they are. You can then have some kind of better conversation. You can roll your eyes or have a look or, and they know that. They know those looks, they can understand you. And I think if we start talking more and more and more mm -hmm. and more on so many different subjects, like we were saying earlier, then everybody is a bit more aware of everybody who's around them. Yeah, I think that, I think it's, you know, finding other people is is huge. Finding and your tribe, yeah, whoever that is. Absolutely. So if you're listening to this and you'd like to come along to Shine's quarterly meetup, um, you know, head on over to the website, shinecancersupport.org. Um, let us know. We'd love to meet you. Um, there's also Live Through This, which is a cancer support group um, for queer people of all ages, run by um, Stuart O'Callaghan, and they are wonderful. They've been on this podcast several times. So I think that's also the other thing is is that, you know, when it comes to support is getting it from different places. So you were saying about your myeloma group is like really useful. And then, you know, it can be Shine's queer group. And then, you know, you've got different places. And then, you know, hearing about what other resources are out there. Because I hadn't heard about like quiet rooms at, at Pride. Um, they sound amazing. <laughs> so I, you know, like this is the thing from these conversations, you get to hear what is out there and, and what is possible as well. Um, because I think sometimes I know for myself, I did kind of the equivalent of both of you sort of powering through is that when I was at Pride, I didn't want to be the one that needed to sit down. I didn't want to be the one that, you know, was going to drag and it so I like pushed and pushed and pushed to get through that day and made myself really unwell because I, I kind of felt like I, I had to live up to and like who who was going to judge me you know so I think that's the thing is we kind of need to like give I, ourselves a little bit of you know space um I was at a straight stag do two three weekends ago and we're all in our 40s some of them late 40s and a couple of us, it was really great because they were caring after me and making sure that I was okay. The Friday, we went water skiing and had a lot of booze. The Saturday, we were all supposed to go out in Oxford and we had a big breakfast and we went punting and we we're going to go out for the whole night and go clubbing. We sat down at like one o'clock and people were like, oh, should we just go back? Should we just chill out and just like... And I was like, I'm fine. Like, what? <laughs> I... I, let's go, let's go. But we always like, does anyone mind? And everyone's like, no, let's just go back and sit in the garden. 
No mm. one's, everyone's feeling the same bit thing, exhausted. So <laughs> you don't have to push through. And I think when one person does, it's like a domino. Oh, yeah, I'm tired yeah. too. Let's just go watch a movie or... It's sometimes it can be that push for normality, can't it? And actually thinking about what do I need? What do I need access to? What might be possible? You know, and kind of looking at like who's doing the events and what they might already have. Because I I would never have thought, oh, you know, find out, does anyone have, you know, um, some of the things that you mentioned about um, quieter places or places out of the sun um, that have bathrooms, proper bathrooms, you know, all of that sounds incredible. So what I want to wish everyone listening is have a very happy Pride. We want to hear from you. Um, Join us. Tell us how your Prides were. Um, Tell us if you found any like really cool workarounds. Indigo. I just wanted to sort of like jump back a little bit um, about like um, finding like queer spaces and stuff, especially with like cancer stuff. There's so often a very heavy division of the men's groups versus the women's groups. Um, As a non-binary person, I was kind of like, which one am I even sort of meant to go to? Because like neither one really applies to me. So like having um, like Shine's focus of like not dividing by gender, it's more just like the age bracket and people who have had or living through cancer like much more inclusive I have to say as an approach but also um queer spaces generally like live through this and like this LGBTQ plus um like shine group like have been like an absolute lifeline for me absolutely but um even just like the um the shine like breakout and like they have the circles group as well for folks that are more terminal but I went to the breakout course in November of 22 there and I have an absolutely amazing solid friendship group like no um like talking about finding your tribe like I have absolutely found like my best friends like we have like this ongoing like chat basically group chat basically um they made me a video whilst I was recovering from my like recent major surgery uh, with like the sweetest little get well soon wishes um so I have to do like a little shout out to my besties because they're fantastic <laughs> and I love them so much I'm so glad that like you found your besties and that you were able to do that online you know so it's it's like you can from your bed still find a community my friends support me I support them back like it is a mutual like interconnectedness that makes us all stronger like it's like weaving support networks together so we're like this fantastic tapestry of awesomeness perfectly put and that reminds me of you self injecting earlier and then showing other people online how to do it like once once you have these skills that are hard won that are really challenging and being sick takes up so much time and it can Mm -hmm. feel like such a waste of time but then when you get to help someone else you're like okay well that time actually helped someone and yeah. that is a lovely, empowering thing to take. So I'm going to take that tapestry. I'm going to say a huge thank you to Indigo and to Scott. And um, thank you to all of you that are listening. And thank you to the awesome radio facilities who make us sound so good and who sponsor our podcast. Till next time. Bye. Happy Bride. Happy Bride. Not your grandma's cancer show. 